0: Oh, good morning, everybody. How's everybody? We good? How's everybody online? Put in the chat window. Let us know. We do go back and look at those comments. Um, I fail to mention this sometimes. Um, We're still working on communion uh, or grape juice that is actually made by somebody here at Ashworth. Uh, Beth Rhodes, who is a part of our classic service, has grapes and has made us jars and jars of delicious, delicious grape juice for us to enjoy. For our communion, so it's it's wonderful. So if you enjoy that, and you know Beth, and you see her, let her know that uh, you appreciate it. Uh, Anybody like me gets sucked into stuff on the internet sometimes. You know, like doom scrolling, or just get sucked into black holes, especially videos. TikTok is horrible. Um, You know, you can just keep swiping. I I do get sucked into videos. In fact, I want to share some with you today. Wow, no one was injured although it was really close <laughs> very very close have you seen some of these before man these are such close calls what in the world and how did we get them on video man these things these videos do draw me in you know it's not just the near collision although that's crazy but you know you think about if you were the person in that in that video right in any of those scenes your life's passing before your eyes right i mean you're thinking whoa holy cow that was i got really close to death you know and we see it and then Again, doom scrolling, you get sucked into one video, and unless you're a sadistic wacko, you're relieved that the person wasn't injured. You're not looking for that. But what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, today we're going to be looking at a really close call where something happened and there was a close call when a group of people were nearly killed. All of, all of them were nearly exterminated by one man's wishes and desires. We're in our Christmas series this year where we're calling it Crowned and each week we're looking at kings and queens of the Bible to see how their lives and the significant events of their lives and how they how they compare and contrast to Jesus the king of kings and we'll be talking about him in a couple of weeks. And so today we're going to look at the only queen we're looking at in the in the series and uh, she's one of the few queens actually mentioned in the Bible amazingly enough, you know there's There's not many there, Uh, but this queen is so significant that there's an entire book in the Old Testament uh, written about her, and uh, it's a very fascinating book, and this is Queen Esther. Now, Amy really wanted to be the one up here today to talk about Esther, but I thought it was too cliche or ironic or whatever to give the lady pastor the lady queen, and so I said, no, you have to have a man next week. I get to speak on the woman this week. So there you go. I just didn't want to have to deal with that pressure of, you know, just giving the woman to the woman. See, you're welcome, Amy. (laughs) But as we look at uh, Queen Esther, what we're going to find is we have a really interesting story of power, of sexism, of racism, specifically anti-Semitism, a close call with genocide, and salvation just in the nick of time kind of what we're looking at. So I'm just going to tell you the story, if that's okay. I love narrative. I love to tell the story. Esther is a beautiful story. Um, It takes place around 480 BCE, about 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people. And if you remember, um, the the Jewish people were only in exile about 70 years. And so this is 100 years. So this is 30 years after some of the people were able to go back. Um, And at this point in history, Babylon has been defeated by Persia. They're the new world power. Some of the Jewish people had returned home to Jerusalem, but some had not. Some had decided to stay in Persia and in Susa is where our story takes place today. And there's some interesting things about the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters long, um, but in the entire 10 chapters, there's no mention of God. Not once, not one mention of God. Isn't that fascinating? Now, if you and I were putting together books to be in the Bible, we might exclude this one because of that. Not only is God not mentioned once, there's no mention of Jerusalem. We don't see anybody praying. There's no mention of God's law. There's none of that. It's basically just a narrative story to tell us about something that happened to the Jewish people living in Susa under the Persian empire. And it's amazing. And so Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, you guys know I love the Bible Project, he says this, he says, what we see in Esther is a brilliant technique by the author, an invitation to read the story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere, to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. And that's what we're going to see. So let's dive in. You have this king, his name is King Xerxes, he ruled Persia, and the king liked to party. Okay, the king liked to party. Some of his parties even lasted six months. I mean, that's that's a pretty that's a big party. Six months, that's a pretty good one. And at one of his parties, and he was also he liked to get good and liquored up too at his parties and just in life in general. And at one of his parties, he decided he was going, wanting to show off his beautiful queen, Queen Vashti. And uh, you know, you think about Queen Vashti and what what role did she have? She was just arm candy you know her whole point in life was to be there for the king's pleasure well i guess she'd kind of had enough and she thought i'm not going and she refused i mean this woman is bold she refused the king he said come out i want to show you to my friends and she said i ain't coming And so this infuriates him because, I mean, after all, back in that day, who tells a man no, and specifically who tells a king no, you know, and this wasn't a season of time that was very friendly to females, and her actions could have resulted in her death. I mean, she could have been just killed right there on the spot. So the king, not wanting the other wives in the kingdom to get this whole little freedom thing in their head... Decides, I need to make an example of her. I would, you know, He's thinking, I can't let all these other wives defy their husbands. So he issues a decree. He passes a law that Queen Vashti could never step into his presence again. I guess that's not... I mean, she's probably like, thank you. I didn't want to be in your presence anyway. But you know, he's, he's making an example of her. But now he's got a problem because this wasn't very well thought out. Because he liked having a wife around, well, at least for some things. And if she can't be in his presence, some things can't happen. So he and his advisors decide that he needs a new queen. And they decide the best way to do this is to hold a beauty contest because, you know, that's what, that's the only thing that matters, right? Is get something that looks good. And so whoever was the most beautiful would become his wife. And, uh, you know, I I figure this is probably the early version of Bumble or Tinder or whatever where the, where the king gets to just kind of swipe left and right. Nope, nope, nope. Yep. Nope. You know, that kind of thing. Exactly. And so of all the women, he finds this woman and her name is Esther. And evidently she was quite beautiful because she caught his attention. And, uh, I don't think he was too concerned with her personality, he certainly wasn't concerned with her heritage or her, her race or anything like that, because Esther was a Jew, and she kept that little detail about herself hidden. She didn't tell the king, she didn't tell anybody. Few people knew, her family knew, but she'd been raised by her cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai, after her parents had died. And so she was able to keep the, the fact of her Jewishness secret. And so King Xerxes and Esther are married. Now we fast forward a little bit and we need to take a sidetrack on the story because Mordecai, the guy who raised Esther, he's out one day walking around and he hears two of the king's guards begin to talk. And as he's listening in, he hears that they're talking about assassinating the king. They're going to get rid of the king. And so Mordecai um, decides, I don't. This shouldn't happen. This is injustice, and I want to speak up. So he go. He finds Esther, and he says, "Esther, you need to uh, warn the king about this plot that's going to happen." And Esther's able to do that. And the the Mordecai, or excuse me, Xerxes is saved. He's not killed. He's not assassinated. But unfortunately for Mordecai, the only thing he gets for his heroic saving of the king is it's written about in the history book. Somebody writes it down that Mordecai you know, informed Esther, who told the king and saved his life. Yay for you. Good job. But more time passes, and then the other characters are introduced into this story. And we're introduced to a man named Haman. And let me just tell you, Haman is not a nice guy. He is evil. He is second in command only to the king, and he is so high-ranking that for some reason the king orders everybody in the, in the kingdom to kneel before Haman. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd have a problem with that. I don't really want to go around kneeling before people. And so Mordecai, he has an issue with this too. And he's like, not going to do it. Now, we don't even get in the story. It doesn't say, I'm not going to do it because I'm committed to God. It just says Mordecai refuses. He says, no. Well, Haman thinks a lot of himself and he thinks he's pretty special. And even though everybody else in the country will bow to him, This one person that won't, this one individual, Haman says, I got to fix this. It's got to be 100% or nothing. So Haman puts a plan in place that'll take care of Mordecai, this Mordecai problem once and for all. And this is where our story takes a very dark turn. Because Haman discovers that Mordecai is a Jew. And then decides, you know, it's not enough for me to just kill Mordecai. In fact, well, let me me read what it says in Esther. It says, uh, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, can we just stop right there for a moment? How twisted, demented evil Do you have to be to want to kill somebody, but to kill a whole race of people? That's crazy, right? I mean, we have crossed a line of even things I can comprehend. Haman, it wants to destroy all the Jewish people in the entire kingdom of Xerxes. So he goes to the king he's you know he's the king second in command he's got access to the king and he convinces the king to issue a decree the king is such an interesting dude cuz basically Haman says here's what I want to do I want to kill all the Jews and the king just basically gives him his ring which is you know the symbol of power and it's like yeah here go ahead do do whatever you want crazy And and it wasn't like he had to do this, but Haman was so intent on doing it. He's like, let me sweeten the pot for you, king, that if you'd let me do this, I'm going to put, uh, it said 10,000 talents of silver in the royal treasury. Now, depending on how you look at this, it's anywhere from four to $40 million. So Haman was a man with money and he was so bent on killing the Jews. He's like, I will pay you millions of dollars for you to let me do this. The king gives him the ring, and he says, do as you please. And so Haman issues this decree, and they set a date in the future for the annihilation of the Jews to take place. Isn't that crazy? So then, obviously, this news gets out that the Jews are going to be killed. And Mordecai hears of it, and he knows this is a problem for him and his people. And Mordecai is distressed. I mean, it tells us that he puts on sackcloth and he gets in ashes, which is a sign of mourning. And he's wailing over this decree. I mean, he is really broken about what's going on. So then he reaches out to Esther, and he says, Esther, can you help me? And uh, she initially resists and is like, "I, I, I can't do this. Uh, It's not me. See, there was a rule in place that you could only, you couldn't just walk up and start talking to the king. The rule for kings of Persia where you had to be invited in. There were like five or seven people that could access the king and that was it. But if you weren't invited in, if you just approached the king, he could just look at you and go, yeah, you're dead. See ya. And so... This is an interesting thing. And so Esther knows this and and Mordecai's like, you got to go talk to the king. And she's like, I can't go unless he calls me in. And so Mordecai uh, sends an answer back to Esther and listen to what he says. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. What's he telling her? He's like, this is going to impact you too. This isn't something just it's about me. It's about all of us and you're included. Because if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's risky for the queen to seek out the king. If she wasn't invited in, if she approached him, she could be killed. It was risky for her to stay a Jew and try to stay silent. But Esther thinks through this, she's challenged by what Mordecai says, and she says, okay, I'll do it. And so she's not an idiot. She's a pretty smart lady. And so she starts hanging outside the king's room, kind of, you know, passing by the doorway to get his attention. And he notices her and he invites her in. And her request to the king is kind of interesting. She doesn't just start right away and say, hey, you got to save the Jews. What she does is she says, I want to invite you and Haman to a dinner at my house. And they're like, sure, We love dinner. We love to eat. We'll come to your house. And Haman is thrilled to get this invitation because, I mean, the queen has invited me. And so this, and I'm going to be at a dinner with just the king and queen. This is amazing. And so they attend the dinner. And at the dinner, I, I don't understand this part of the story. At the dinner, the king's like, all right, Esther, thanks for dinner. What do you want? And she's like, what I want is for you to come back tomorrow to another dinner. And they're like, great. Okay. You're a good cook, we'll be back. And Haman is feeling really good about himself. himself. But on the way home, he sees Mordecai. And as he sees Mordecai, it reminds him of who Mordecai is. And here's this one individual that refuses to bow down. And he flies into this rage and he goes home and he's talking with his family and his friends and his friends do not give him great advice. And they don't talk about how much money he's got or how powerful he is or how everybody else in the kingdom bows down. What they do is they say, you know, what you need to do is you need to go out and build a stake called a gallows or a stake, um, 75 feet tall so that you can have Mordecai impaled on it. So he does. He, that evening, they go out and they build this huge pole to impale Mordecai on. Before the second dinner party, though, something else is going on in the story. The king has some indigestion and can't sleep. And as he can't sleep, he's thinking, ah, somebody get me a history book. So let me hear what's going on or what's happened. And so he listens to the stories of the history of his reign. And in that story that he's told, he's reminded of the story of Mordecai. And he thinks, you know, I never did anything for Mordecai. I should, have, I should do something for him. He saved my life. I should do something for him. And so this is where the, you know, the thing gets interesting because the next day Haman comes in And the king's like, what would you do, Haman, for a guy that has done so much for you? How would you honor and celebrate him? And I'm sure Haman in his mind, he's like, he's talking about me. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. Well, you know what I'd do? I'd put the royal robes on him and I'd put him on the king's horse and I would march him through the city and let everybody just clap and be like, woo, we love you. And the king says, that's an amazing idea. Go find Mordecai and you do that for Mordecai. Yeah, you can see where this is going, right? So Mordecai just is, you know, this is awful for him. He is so infuriated and angry and just beside himself. And But he does it because you can't refuse the king. And so just to make, picture that. Mordecai uh, on the horse, Haman leading him through the city, down the streets, and everybody yelling and screaming and yay. And just what does Mordecai's face look like? Or excuse me, what does Haman's face look like in that moment? Probably not too happy. Mortified. That's right. Exactly. So they do this, and but you know, Haman has another dinner party to attend with the king, so he can get through this, right? And he does. And so they go to the second dinner party, and Esther at this party reveals the, the whole plot. Says, you know, that the, that you have issued a decree to annihilate the Jews, and it's enacted, and it's going to result in the annihilation of her people and her as well. That it's going to that they're all going to die. And the king is furious with this. He's like, who, who would do such a thing? Who, who is responsible for this? And of course, Esther's like, that one right there. He's the man. And so the king, it's so fun, fun story. The king leaves the room in anger. He's fuming, he's mad, he doesn't know what he's going to do. And Haman begins to beg for his life. And he throws himself on the couch where Esther was sitting. Now to us, that may not sound like a big deal, but in this Culture. This was very inappropriate behavior. You wouldn't be on the couch with the queen, the king's wife. And so when the king runs into the room, he sees Haman laying on the couch next to Esther, and that was it. It was over, it was done with. One of the men's king looks at the king and he's like, Well, you know, king, Haman just built a big gallows, a big stake out there. You could use that. And the king's like, Done. And they take Haman out, and they impale him on the stake that he built for Mordecai. The king issues a new decree. The people are saved. Uh, The new decree couldn't do away with the old one. So basically, the new decree said, Jews, you can defend yourselves. And so do whatever it takes to survive. And so what that did is that stopped the people from wanting to kill them. And eventually what happens is Mordecai is elevated to a position of authority, of power by the king. And they all live happily ever after, maybe, kind of. I don't think so, but, you know, there's the story. Isn't that fascinating? And Esther's such an interesting story. Like I said, uh, you know, like I said last week, it's not a nice and tidy story with a nice Christmas ribbon on top. Because as we look at the story, we're going to find a couple of examples of people that God uses, but there's challenges in their story. But you start with Mordecai. He seems like a good guy, right? He's a man with no power or position. He helped raise this young woman who now lives in the palace. He hears of an assassination attempt. He speaks up. He responds appropriately when he hears that his people are going to be destroyed. And he does what he can to stop injustice. He's been Esther's guardian since the death of her parents. And he knows that she's in a position to help. And if she, can't, uh, if she can't, he knows that her fate will be the same as his. And so he exercises this courage and he has this lament to step up for his people. And it involves this moment of mentoring Esther, kind of pushing against her when she initially refuses. And he's a source of wisdom for her as she considers what she has to do. You know, I often say at Ashworth, one of the greatest things about this church is that we have, we're a multi-generational church. We have, you know, kids as young as, uh, how old is Kinsey now, Noel? Four months? Four months, there we go. So we have four months all the way to uh, Eileen Thomas, who uh, can't be with us most of the time, but she's 96, you know? I mean, it's a good range. But the tragedy is when I think the generations stay segregated. And the younger generation doesn't see the value in the life experience and wisdom of those ahead of them in the journey, or when the older and wiser generation doesn't think they have anything to offer. Think about Esther and what would have been the fate of the people if Esther had said, I can't, and Mordecai had said, well, I don't really have anything to offer. I don't have anything to give. Mordecai, for some reason, was convinced that God would have prevailed one way or another, and I'm sure he would have, but this is such an incredible example to us. How life is meant to be shared and life is meant to be lived in community. Shared knowledge, shared wisdom, shared faith. Such an interesting thing. And we see that taking place between Mordecai and Esther. How he steps into that and pushes back, even challenges her when necessary. But then you have Esther. And unlike David last week as queen, she has no power. You know, it is. She's arm candy for the king. That's it. You know, and she's just there to make him happy. She exists for his pleasure, literally. She doesn't even have the privilege of entering His presence whenever she wants to. And this is probably why her initial reaction is hesitation, reluctance, fear. She's not some superwoman without a care in the world. She's actually just yet another woman in the ancient Near Eastern culture who is used by a man simply because she is beautiful. And she's in this really terrible situation. She knows that, and she shows that courage and faith... Are not incompatible with hesitation and fear. There are real consequences if she doesn't go, and there's real consequences if she does. And Mordecai, to be fair, lays it on. Says to her, "Do you think you became queen to live in the lap of luxury, or could there be a greater purpose in where God has, or where you've been placed? He didn't say God, but where you've been placed. And what she may not have in power." It's amazing because she does have in relationship and influence. And we see that in her. She has this position. She has relationship. And in the end, she accepts responsibility. She actually says to the, to the messenger that's relaying messages between her and Mordecai, she says, Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days and night or day. Uh, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Look at that. If I perish, I perish. And from this point on, we have to give Esther her props, right? Because it's Esther who comes up with the plan to go to the king and serve a banquet twice. And it's Esther who has to tell the king what's going on. It's Esther who has to speak up for her people. And so she does. And she stands in the gap for the people. And she was raised up for such a time as this. You know, one of the more fascinating things about this story to me, as I mentioned earlier, is how there is no mention of God. God's name is noticeably absent. And as you read the story of Esther, I think as you think about how Mordecai and what the Jewish people were experiencing, I imagine it felt like to them God was completely absent, didn't it? Where is God in the middle of this? And I think, how much much of the time does it feel like maybe that for us? How much of the time does it feel like maybe we're going through life and God is absent for us? God seems missing. We go through things we see or we experience injustice, and it leaves us wondering where in the world is God. I mean, can we have a show of hands? Who, Someone who might have thought that at any time in the last 11 months this year? I see some hands there. Absolutely. But as I read, you know, Esther is such a great reminder for us that even though God isn't mentioned, it doesn't mean that he isn't there. When he seems absent, it doesn't mean he's inactive, even though it seems that way sometimes. One book I read this week pointed out, it said... Could it be that the absence of mentioning God is directly connected to the book's brilliant literary design? Maybe God's apparent absence is actually part of the book's very sophisticated way of talking about God's providence. Perhaps the point is that God is always at work even when we can't see that work explicitly. Isn't that the truth? There's a Bible scholar named Michael V. Fox, not Michael J., Michael V., Uh, And he's got a book on Esther called Character and Ideology in Esther. And he says this, he says, When we scrutinize the text of Esther for the traces of God's activity, we are doing what the author has made us do. The author would have us probe the events we witness in our own lives in the same way. He is teaching a theology of possibility. The willingness to face history with an openness to the possibility of divine providence, even when history seems to weigh against its likelihood, as it did in the dark days after Haman's decree. In this way, the book offers a stance of profound faith. Think for a moment in your own life where it might appear that God is absent. Is it possible that even in that moment that God is there? Because he is powerfully at work even sometimes when we can't see it. The other thing I love about the story of Esther is it's an incredible reminder of God's timing. Esther was given position even if it wasn't one she would have necessarily asked for or wanted. She got it because she looked good to the king, a position for just this moment to intervene for her people. Often I don't think we understand God's timing. Why am I here? What am I doing in this place right now? Often we find ourselves, like we do in the season of Advent, waiting. But we have to remember that even if we don't understand it, God's perfect really is, God's timing really is perfect. You know, even in the New Testament, there's a lot said about timing. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Galatia, he's talking about Jesus, and look at what he says. He says, But when the time, uh, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Isn't that amazing? But when the right time had come, when the time had fully come, Jesus didn't come a moment too soon or too late. At the right time, God sent his son to redeem the world so that we might be reconciled to God. You see, the season of Advent is that reminder of the waiting, the anticipation a reminder that even when we can't see it, God is moving. And it reminds us that not just that Christmas happened, but that God's not done yet. We wait today for that ultimate consummation, for the kingdom of God. We wait for the, wait for the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. And while we wait, here's a question that Steve Rogers posed us this week as we were talking about this. We consider how might God raise up beauty today? like he did with Esther, to confront power and influence in the world around us? Isn't that a great question? Esther, a woman in the ancient Near Eastern culture, had nothing. No education, no status, no position, no anything. She had good looks. (laughs) She was beautiful. And God used that to position her in a place to do something incredible, to stop the genocide of the Jewish people. How might God use and raise up beauty today to confront power and influence the world around us? How might we reveal the beauty of the heart of God, which is love? As I read this week, how might we use our influence, our relationships, to bring healing and restoration and repair to our broken world in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? That's a great question, isn't it? That's the question I think that we come at from Queen Esther's life is how might we use what Esther used, not just beauty, but influence and position and relationship to bring healing, to bring restoration and repair to our broken world? Because that's why we're here, isn't it? It's not just to exist for ourselves. It's to speak to injustice. It's to look at the world around us and, and, and call these things out when necessary, I mean, there's so much more that we could say about the story of Esther. But I mean, even as we look and we think about the potential genocide of a group of people, the racism behind that, specifically the anti-Semitism of Haman. And amazingly, there seems to be that attitude rearing its ugly head around us again today. What is going on? I don't understand. And it should go without saying but racism of any kind or any dynamic that elevates one group of people above another or seeks to diminish or destroy another group in any form toward any group of people for any ethnicity or any religion or faith or any gender or sexual orientation or skin color or language is not from God. Can we just all agree on that? I mean, seriously, I mean, it, it kills me a little bit that we even have to speak those words in this culture today and yet we do because it seems that there's a crazy element that just says nope that's okay if we want to diminish others as long as it elevates me and we better remember that if some, at the moment the moment we believe that is the moment we become an antichrist because instead of seizing and grabbing power, Jesus laid down his life and sacrificed himself. It is not, nor has it ever been about power. And the f- moment you think it's about power is the moment you're on the wrong side. We have to understand something. God has all the power. He's not sitting up in, uh, in the world going, oh, what am I going to do? I don't know if this is going to work or whatever. No, God's got all the power. And when we understand that, we can walk away and go, yeah, I don't need that power. God's got it all. I can rest in him, and his timing will be perfect. And maybe for us, as we think about what we see in the world, we feel a little bit reluctant, failing to see how God could use us in a certain situation. But is it possible that wherever you're at and whatever you see, that God has raised you up for such a time as this? Stop thinking that you don't have anything to offer because you do. Can I remind you that that you may not even realize how God can use you to do amazing things? And when I say amazing things, I don't mean front page of the newspaper things. I mean maybe just impacting one person, a neighbor, a coworker, someone who's struggling, to step up and maybe be a mentor to someone on the faith journey. You see, Esther proved to be an unlikely hero who risked her life for the salvation of people. Jesus also was another unlikely hero who laid down his life for the salvation of the entire world. Maybe you're an unlikely hero that God's looking to use in some way. I just close with these words, Jesus' own words about God's timing for him in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, right at the beginning. Jesus says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. What is God saying to you this morning? As we hear the story of Esther, as we think about Jesus and as we think about how that relates to our world, what might God be be calling you or speaking to you this morning to step up, to speak, to show you that you've been put somewhere for such a time as this? Let's pray.